Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Burntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Good day, good people. My name is Brad King, and you are listening to the Downtown Writer's Jam podcast, which is part of the Solid Listen Podcast Network. Max the Dog and I are coming to you from deep inside the jam bunker on day 230 of the pandemic. He is currently trying to eat a fly here, so that's how it's going for us. Just a few days out till the election, make sure you have your plan to vote. This is a really big one, and it's important. Got a great show for you today. This is one of the shows that I have been looking forward to because it is with Larry Smith, who runs a thing called the Six Word Memoir Project. But what is interesting about Larry and I is that we have been circling each other for 20 years, literally living in the same place, having the same friends, doing the same kinds of things, have known about each other since the 90s, never managed to meet each other. So today is going to be the first time that we've met And it is a fantastic conversation. Here's some stuff you need to know about Larry. So he was part of this early magazine thing that was happening in the Bay Area. And we're going to talk a little bit about that on the show. But he ended up creating the one of the first user-generated storytelling communities at a place called Smith Magazine. Out of Smith Magazine, he started working with this group called Twitter right around the time it launched and founded the Six Word Memoir Project. Since 2006, when this started, 1.7 million stories have been told using this. And there's been so many things that have grown out of it. Classroom stuff, conferences, festivals. In 2018, Larry turned one six-word memoir uh, into a 70-minute one-woman show. It was written by a then 17-year-old Syrian refugee named Sarah Abu Rashid. And she's a poet, and she's amazing. If you Google her, you will see why Larry did this with her. His own personal essays have appeared in countless collections, and he lives in Berkeley, which is my old stomping ground, with his wife, Piper, who you may know from Orange is the New Black, and their son. We'll get to all of that in just a few minutes. It's a big show today, but first we have a little business to cover. As you know, we do two shows every week on Monday and Thursday. There's two things you can do to help us out. First, leave us a review, particularly a written review, wherever you listen to podcasts. That is how people find us. And tell your friends about us. We host a monthly happy hour, which you can find over at thewritersjam.com. We're about to announce November, and I can tell you, I just spent some time last night working with some folks, and we're going to have some cool happy hours coming up in the near future. So keep stopping back to the website. If you want to buy the books of anybody who's been on the program, we have a bookshop link. Click on that. When you buy through that link, you do two things. You both support local and independent bookstores, and we get a little scratch back, which is good since apparently there's flies in my house and I need to make sure Max is medicated. You can also sign up for the monthly newsletter. In that, you get book recommendations, reviews, podcast highlights, and happenings around the web. Lastly, you can support the Solid Listen Network as a whole. Click on that Patreon button, and for just a couple bucks a month, 
You'll get commercial-free episodes, special happy hours, and bonus content from everybody on the network. Now, we're going to talk about some of this today on the show, just because Larry's professional life and my personal life intersected through a lot of the magazines and places that we're going to talk about. Because back in the early 90s, at least for me, I had been on the internet since 1984. So I was this kid in this little Appalachian town that grew up on these message boards and like I had dialed into the well for a little while. It was exploring all of this stuff. And I didn't understand what a lot of it was because I was 12, 13, 14 years old. But I was fascinated by the conversations and the exploration of technology and community that was happening in these virtual spaces, long before the web, right? There's not that many 12-year-olds in Appalachia that was using Telnet to dial into these places. And I was absolutely fascinated. And along the way, as I got older, I came across publications like the original Boing Boing, which was a magazine before it was a website, uh, Mondo 2000, a whole bunch. I think The Future of Sex was one, which sort of grew out of the sort of techno interpersonal relations stuff and eventually in the 90s we have things like might magazine and a bunch of stuff like alternate the utney reader all of these things that sort of grew out of the alt weekly gen x zine sensibility i read the stuff incessantly couldn't put it down. And I'll be honest, I didn't understand what a lot of it meant because it was very specific to particularly California culture and particularly like Bay Area culture, at least in terms of like Boing Boing and Mondo and Might. Had some New York, had some Bay Area. And so I just didn't know. But it was a thing that I was like a moth to a flame. I knew that that was my tribe. Those were my people. And so that was what I always knew I was going to go to Berkeley for graduate school. Didn't know how I was going to make that happen. Didn't know why I felt that way. I just thought, well, I need to be out there. So when I get there years later, and, you know, Larry had been part of lots of these things. You know, Mother Jones, Ms. Magazine, I was reading all of that stuff. Larry was working in that. And so he was you know, a few years ahead of me doing these kinds of things. So our paths were intersecting before we even knew each other, before I got out to California and started my career. Over the years, you know, when you're a writer in a magazine world doing these kinds of weird-ass things that, uh, you know, other people are sort of looking at you side-eye in, the community is not that big, which is why we have so many people in common, just because, like, you sort of moved around in that sphere, until the tech boom hit, all that stuff was like weird subculture stuff. I ended up at Wired just at the time that everything blew up. So really, like, I was the guy that showed up after the neighborhood stopped being cool. But it was still part of that world. And, like, I still trace myself back to Mondo and all of that kind of stuff. Like, that is my sensibility. When I moved to Austin, and we talk about Katie Ford um, who is uh, friends with Piper and was my first editor in Austin, I was writing for a place called Fringeware, which was an alien you know, shop that had a magazine and bookstore. And by alien, I mean like space alien. Like those were my people. Like Paco Nathan was, that was, that was sort of where I was running around in. And for those of you who are listening, some of this stuff probably doesn't even make sense to you, which is the point. That whole network of people who went on to become 
well-known people, established writers. I mean, he met uh, Larry met Dave Eggers the first time he wrote a column for the East Bay Express, which is how he ended up working at Might Magazine. All of these things were like the proving grounds and the staging grounds for the next 20 years of magazine storytelling and long-form storytelling and lots of the discussions about the weird subcultures around technology. Not the gadget stuff, but the actual culture around it is where that was happening. And if you're ever online, Heather Gold and I will occasionally have these discussions about that sort of early web time because there really is two webs. There really is two technologies. There's this weird bro-y Silicon Alley thing and Silicon Valley thing, this sort of New York and, and California make a new gadget. But in the beginning, it was this community of weirdos who found each other and who were looking at the world in a different place. And part of my failings as a wired writer was that that was the aesthetic that I came out of. And so I never really truly saw the bro culture happening because that was not the lens into which I came into any of this. And I think Larry's very much the same way. You're going to hear this conversation. And the, and the reason, I mean, he worked at Alternet. He worked at these places that were very specifically looking for other ways to tell stories. And starting a magazine that's built around user-generated content wasn't unique, but the idea of what he wanted to do with it was very egalitarian. And it's why it's taken off, because it really is the best ethos of that time and place. And I sound like a fucking old man because I'm an old man. But all I can tell you is that time, that Mondo, Boing Boing, Miz, and Miz had been around before that, Mother Jones, Utney Reader, Alternet, Future of Sex, all of those things and the web communities that were developing around them, or the, I guess the internet communities before the web, were so freeing because it was the first time you could find weirdo people like yourself and connect with them without worrying about the location. And so when I rolled into Berkeley and I've told the story, I didn't know anybody, really. I mean, I knew David Peskovitz and I knew a couple other folks, but I knew the community of people that were there and I knew where they were and I knew how to find them. You know, for a poor kid from Appalachia, that felt pretty good going 3,000 miles from home. So that was what was going through my mind when Larry reached out to me and said, hey, man, I want to be on the program. And I thought, yeah, because you were at that time and place with me, with all this other group of people, and it's really hard to explain it. And as you listen to this interview, what I really hope you get out of this is a sense of wonderment about what that was. Not the bro stuff, not the Silicon Valley and Silicon Alley stuff, but the essence of what that world really was then. So that's what you got coming. That's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, it's all filtered through Larry, who's fucking fascinating and amazing and wonderful. And there's a couple really funny moments. Uh, there's many funny moments, but there's a couple of those like, oh, shit, I had no idea. Um, that, you know, you were part of this famous couple. Because why would I? And it's one of the beautiful things about life. But you'll hear that in just a couple minutes. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Larry Smith.
I think this is, you know, as important as the 60s are, if possibly not more. Yeah. You know, when you're in it, it's hard to, like, realize that in 20 years, there will be students of the 20s and there'll be books and classes and, you know, probably not in 20, but it's just we are in it. And it's hard to act in a weird way, process the moment when you're living it. Yeah. Um, but is it we got to win a moment and it's a big one. Yeah. It's it's so strange. And, you know, what's interesting about this conversation happening like right at this time and you and you and I know this because we've talked about this, but our paths have crossed like our entire like basically our entire lives and we've gone that without ever meeting each other. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> totally true. So it also feels like it's a time when lots of people that like are in the sort of like writer like artists, people that are doing this stuff are beginning to coalesce into a place and like, okay, like this is we now actually have to be coordinated about things. We yeah. actually have to think about what we're producing and how it's being impactful and, and what do we need to be saying? Yeah. Um, and I find that to be just an interesting, you know, just sort of as an external third party viewer of planet America, I'm like, Oh, it's really, you're just seeing this, that consolidation happen. I think. And, and suddenly some of the, you know, not that we shouldn't still have playful and silly projects, but some of those projects that seemed like you had to do, like, it's like, well, you know, it's like, you just make maybe just, you don't want to be, um, you don't want to be ephemera right now, you know, yeah, right. you want to at least, at least, you know, move, you know, however way your work, I mean, my work has a clear lane in that, which is, you know, I'm not, I can't, I'm not, I don't know how to sew a mask or like, you know, I uh, put in a ventilator, but I can, I can create a six words in the pandemic teacher's guide and make it freely available and right. like, like help kids express themselves like you know my lane you know obviously i can i can donate money to mass makers and all that but like specifically it's nice that when the work of storytelling never been more important yeah um and self-express it's just one one of the many tools to change the world you know yeah. and, the conversation. And, and i do think it's important like i do like the more i do this show and the more i talk to people the more i convince myself that stories and fiction do more to create empathy and do more to help people people form the way they think than I think I even believed before I started this show. Yeah. Um, and you well, know. I mean, you know, you can, you know, I, when I, when I give talks, sometimes, you know, I talk about stories versus data, right. And yeah. there's data that shows that if you have a story with, with, with a piece of data, um, uh, that's better than just data. But in fact, in terms of people remembering it and repeating it, if you just have a story and no data, the data says that will be even better. You know, and there's, there's, there's classic stories from uh, stories about welfare, welfare moms that like right. the data actually didn't prove that, but that's what everyone remembers. And right. So the, you know, there's data that says stories beat data. And we changed, uh, you know, uh, the reason, you know, uh, gay marriage uh, is so accepted in America is not because of data, but because you had a neighbor who was gay, you're like, oh, you heard a story. You heard an right. interesting story. Uh, same with drunk, you know, seatbelts. Seatbelts were stories, you know? Yeah. Um, so I sort of like, when people say, yeah, your storytelling, it sounds light. Not that you really do much anymore, but it's like, no, stories change the world. They change laws. They change, you know, they change decisions. And yeah. I mean, we'll get to all that, like, that's also embedded in your family, right? Like that, like, but what you guys are doing out there, like are all about that are all about stories yeah, and the way we're all about, we're all about stories. You yeah. know, it's so, it's so funny. It's not because I last year when my kid was in third grade, I sent the teacher, Hey, I do the six word thing. Lots of classrooms teach it. And we have free guides and 
I'm just letting you know, I have no skin in this game. You don't need to buy books or anything, but like I do this thing and, and, you know, I, I, I do lots of talks with classes and workshops. I'd be happy to, you know, do something with Lucas's class. And, and, um, you know, she was like, sure. And, you know, nothing happened. No big deal. And then a few days ago, his fourth grade teacher was like, Hey, Larry, you know, he's very involved in, in, in with parents. He said, Hey, um, I, I want to do a six word storytelling uh, module for fourth grade, but I just want to make sure like I'm not infringing on copyright. And I'm like, Sean, on my website, there's a, there's a Here's the free version. Well, well, yeah, there's, there's a link that says school. Like it's, it'd be my delight. I would never push it on you, but let's make sure that my child is not embarrassed. Right. And he, he went from like fine dad to like, when they were, they started a Monday and he's like, Hey, what, can, give me some of your books so I can show my class. He was very <laughs> sweet. You know, he sort of cracked, like I'm in one of the books, but it was just like, you know, it's just, uh, yeah, our, you know, our, our work is all about storytelling and, you know, Piper obviously is God helping, you know, changing the story of the criminal justice system. Yeah. In fact, you know, teaching, she taught, you know, two classes of, uh, incarcerated, um, students, her students and men's, uh, medium security and a women's medium security, which why I think I told you we went to Ohio and it's all yeah. about like, there's, there, let a thousand pipers bloom. You know what I mean? Yeah. And their stories told their books published. That yeah. My friend runs an organization down in Austin called, um, Oh God, I'm going to say it wrong. Tell her story, but it's essentially, it's a, it's a prison, a women's prison. Wait, is writing it Katie, program. Katie Ford? Yeah. You know, Katie, of course it's a small, it's a, it's a small prison world. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 Katie I, was my first editor when I moved to Austin. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, I, you know, yeah, I had, you know, after events over the years in Austin, I've, I've had, you know, 10 great people in like a bar, including Katie just yeah. in the night and, and she's, she's great. And it's also great to get a, to get her a little less serious. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you know, me, I mean, I, we, we don't know each other, but like, I am the least, like, I'm a writer, goofy writer. So like any interactions I ever had with her, like I was always like, she's a very studious person. Oh my like, God. Yeah, no, like none of this shit's going to happen. As is my wife. But I, I do know that like, it's okay. <laughs> we can stop talking about prison reform at one in the morning. I, right. I mean, Katie and Piper will go all night. I'm like, can we just, just someone want to talk about football or something? But, right. but, any, but yeah. I appreciate it. I mean, Ruth Gator Ginsburg, Ginsburg, everyone says, there was no small talk, you know, right. and now, and I love that, but so, sometimes I'm like, we just got to take a breath. Yeah. Uh, you have to, to rechart. It's one of the interesting things is that I, I was, I didn't know who your wife was. I knew you. And like all of a sudden when the show came on TV, you posted something one day and I'm like, why the fuck is Larry posting that? And I'm like, Oh shit. <laughs> like, I don't know how yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> right. Well, no, I mean, there, there, you wouldn't, you know, right. Uh, There's no reason, right. There's no, and well, then it's happened. Um, my friend Elisa Batista was, I worked with her at Wired and she was married to the guy who started the Daily Coast. I had no idea for like 13 years. He was just, it was just her husband. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, well, and you know, and in a weird way, it doesn't matter unless it's interesting via right. work or whatever. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not, right? It's everybody's life and like you're around people and you're just like, oh yeah, yeah, that happens. It was just one of those like, how the fuck do I not know this? Like, right. just one of those weird moments. I'll tell you a funny, a funny story on that, which is a couple years ago, I was doing a talk at a Jewish fundraiser, like the JCC in like Boston. And I do like a 20 minute talk and, and I can, I can spin, I can spin six word memoirs through a Jewish life lens easily. Pick, right. pick a lens, water, Christian. And they're like, anyway, so I do that. 
and I give my talk and then I sit down to eat like my, you know, my, my chicken or whatever, my kosher chicken dinner there. And uh, I can say all this because I'm Jewish despite the last name. And um, afterwards, the eight people who are under 65 years old in the room, like eight women with dark curly hair, like, bum rush me. And I get a picture of them. I'm like, wow, you, you, you all really like six word memoirs. But they're like, we know you're the real Larry. <laughs> I was like, I was like, this is, I was like, can we please get a picture with you seven women behind me and post it to Twitter and tag Piper, you know, just be like, Larry's, Larry's unleashed among the Jewish curly haired women. It was was just so fun. I'm like, I'm like, huh? Like how did all the younger people get to me so quickly? Really funny. So, but, uh, but I love the fact that like 99% of the people in the room didn't know. Right. Right. Yeah, it's I had my experience. I went to Lucas Ranch when I was at Wired and the sort of short version is they played a joke on me and sat me in George Lucas's chair in the dining room. And I didn't know that nobody's supposed to sit there. (laughs) So I walk in and everybody's looking at me and I'm like, oh, Lucas Ranch has heard Wired has come to do a big story. And I'm like, yeah, there we go. Look at me. (laughs) Yeah, really sitting back. And he walked through and came over and like he was like, oh, introduce himself. We talked for like a minute and I see everybody who sat me down laughing in the corner. And I thought, well, this is not going the way I thought that it was going. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so Somebody's having a good time with Brad's ego. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. So you're out in Berkeley. Where are you originally? You're not from Berkeley. Where are you originally from? Uh, no, uh, I'm originally from a small town um, in South Jersey outside of Philadelphia. Um, you, you know, because when you say you're from Jersey, people automatically put you in New York and like an, at, a, at a New York Giants game. Uh, but we were very Philly-based, sports-wise. I'm wearing my Philadelphia 76ers T-shirt today. Didn't go so well for them this season. But, yeah, so real Philly people and just a small town that was founded by Quakers. And, oh, really? Um, it was a dry town, which is interesting, which didn't I didn't know the difference back then. But, right. um, and, you know, it was suburban town. My parents grew up in the, the, the town, a couple towns over. They... They met in kindergarten. Their oh my god! Met. Really? They went to the prom. Yeah. Wow. So they were like they were in it. What did they do? Uh, well, it's funny though about my parents. So they you know they were dating through high school and then through college and then um, they went to different colleges. And my mom decided that um, that my dad Lou uh, Lewis he uh, they were too they were too unalike. He didn't like the beach. He he didn't like writing and books and things like poetry and and she was all about that and she later was a a teacher a high school teacher for a little while and then for most of her career a social worker and my dad um eventually became a small town lawyer with an office you know down the block from where he grew up and so my dad wrote these letters while in college you know carol i've been reading poetry and it was all a fake you know no he lied Yeah. yeah totally and then they got back together and got married, and they're still married now. They're they're about to turn eighty, so and they are really different. And they fight like old Jews, but they love each other. And you know, my dad still doesn't like to beat your poetry, and so uh, yeah. <laughs> I love the fact that he was like, "I know what I need to say, but I just don't feel like doing the work." Yeah, he was going to be a lawyer. He knows how to argue a case. <laughs> but yeah, so they're from a little town, from you know, a couple towns from where I grew up, and uh, and they. They're still in the house I grew up in. They should get out of that house and find, a, find a, an apartment <laughs> in Philadelphia, but they're not going anywhere. Nah, at 80, way. man, that's you're, you're riding at home. Are you ready to shop? 
Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% back at hundreds of stores, and it's all happening this week, May 6th to May 13th. It's the perfect time to shop for everything on your list for spring and summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. I know I'm using this week to stock up on some warmer weather essentials at Ray-Ban and Ulta, and I love that Rakuten even helps me save on travel at sites like Hotels.com. Rakuten really is the best way to shop, and you can save even more by stacking cash back on top of deals. Plus, during Big Give Week, that cash back is bigger than ever. With Rakuten, membership is free, and when you sign up and shop today, you get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of the 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, you are right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, do you have brothers and sisters or are you only child? Uh, I'll share. I'll answer that in, in six words and I'll tell you. So one of the first six word memoirs I wrote is two sisters never left seat up. <laughs> I have two sisters. I'm the middle boy of two sisters. And when I was you know, dating women, um, and in fact, when I you know, moved in uh, with uh, uh, Piper, um, she said, this is amazing. Um, you're the only guy who I had roommates and my dad and, uh, and who doesn't leave the seat up. And I was like, he was not done. I, said, I shared a bathroom with my two sisters. Two sisters never left seat up. I'm a very well-trained uh, human being. <laughs> yeah. If you, if you have strong women in your life, there's, I've heard several times from people they are like, Oh, that's, I wasn't expecting that from you. I'm like, I got a lot of big sisters, man. <laughs> I, 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 I made my own lunch. I did laundry at a young age. I yeah. was, I was well raised in that, in that regard. Yeah. And some of it I've had to learn later, but like my, my, these older sisters in my life have always been very happy to tell me when I'm wrong. Yes, exactly. <laughs> They've not worried if that hurt me. <laughs> no, no. It's, uh, no, it's, uh, it's an interesting smush between two, two, two girls. Um, it, didn't just, it was just my life, but a lot of people said that's a really, a boy between two girls, that's a really interesting place. And like, I don't know, I just felt like I had a pretty good understanding and appreciation of women. You yeah. Know? Um, and never you know, best friends or women and men. It's been that way my whole life. And, yeah. and I know that is not, doesn't seem that unusual, but a lot of guys really don't have close women friends, you know, yeah. like sometimes. It's so interesting because I have this group that I just call my older sister. Like that just, I mean, I have actual two older sisters as well, but I'm like, there's just something about my personality that if you're a couple years older than me, like you, they want to take me under my wing and, and fix me when, I, you know, tell me when I'm wrong. <laughs> like, <laughs> 
and and they're all very talented and smart. And I'm like, well, shit, that's I like being around talented, I, I smart would, people. I would listen to them. You yeah. Know? I would listen to them. They're, well, I mean, it's people like Katie Ford, right? Like it's people that are doing stuff that you're like, well, yeah. Yeah. If you tell me I'm wrong, I'm probably wrong. I believe they're here to help. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So were you guys close growing up? Other I than the think, toilet seats? <laughs> I mean, I think so. Uh, uh, we, uh, you know, we fought. Sure. You know, those backseat car trips, like, you know, wanting to rip each other to pieces. Um, my... Uh, Older sister also became a lawyer like my dad. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Uh, my younger sister, one of the reasons that we, re, you know, we were in uh, Columbus, Ohio for over four years, and the plan was always to go back to Brooklyn, where we came from. Um, didn't plan to stay in Columbus for more than a year, but loved it, and Piper's work kept going and going and going. I loved the work I did there. But my younger sister uh, has been in San Francisco for over 20 years. She got there a little after I left. I was in San Francisco in, in the 90s, as you know, and she worked for Health and Human Services for the city of San Francisco. So she's been very busy these past six yeah. months. Yeah. And she has two kids. So part of the return back to, you know, the Bay Area, which in 2019, even, you know, we know there's fires. We know there could be earthquakes. We didn't know there'd be a pandemic, but that's the whole world. Uh, who moves back, right? I mean, it's expensive, and the tech boom isn't always the prettiest thing, but I thought, family, I do love California, we will make it work, and uh, so, yeah, so I'm especially close to my younger sister now because, you know, the location, the kids, yeah. and, and, you know, um, but, uh, you know, I always, I always liked my family, which is a nice thing. <laughs> it's always helpful when that's part of the equation. What were yeah. you like as a kid? Well, as my wife said to me, you know, if I knew you were student council president, I probably never would have dated you. I hated those guys. Um, I was um, a little bit like my, my kid now. I was an extrovert. I talked a lot. Still do, despite being a short form guy. I, I liked school. I liked running things. I liked running. You know, I wanted to be the editor of the fourth grade newspaper. I wanted to be the pitcher on the baseball team. Um, and when the smoke cleared, I realized I'm more likely to be commissioner of baseball than on a baseball team, you know, you know, (laughs) mediocre, but excited athletes. So, you know, I was just into it. I was just like, you know, I just wanted to be engaged and be part of life and, and, you know, uh, failed overachieving a bunch of times. We all still do. Um, I liked, I liked that description of it. <laughs> yeah, we had a nice group. My, um, my three best friends growing up and really going more or less from third grade uh, forever, one moved out of the country, but two of them happened to live in the Bay Area. I've known them since third grade. Uh, we've stayed friends the, the whole way. You know, we watched Philly sports together, you know, because we all grew up that way. But we really were... Um, a fun group of people, you know, the extended friend group of pretty interested in school, pretty interested in sports, interested in, in girls and, you know, some, you know, eventually boys. And, but like back then in the eighties, it just, yeah. nobody was out in my high school that I, yeah. that I knew of. And uh, I just, I, I liked the slice we were, we were fun. We got into trouble, you know, we got caught drinking, you know, in the suburbs. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I think we were an interesting, a, a little bit badass, but when the smoke cleared, um, pretty serious about life and school. Yeah. 
it's funny my best friends we my best friends in life i met after high school but like it's all basically that same thing like yeah we kind of fucked around we but we sort of had a line like i will go this far and this, yeah. the line is a little bit farther than most people will go like there's been right. some jail and there's been some you know there's been some yeah. incidents uh but at the end of the day like we've all ended up like look it's time to reel this back in and like do the world. I, call, I call it the self-preservation principle. I mean, yeah. lots of people call it that. I really like to push it far, whatever it may be. You yeah. know, how many days of Burning Man? How many, you know, drinks at a party? Right. But I actually know, certainly at this age, and I've known for a little while, like, okay, I actually don't want to, um, I, I, I want to preserve my life and my sanity and, right. like, you know, how good I feel in the morning. Yeah, how good I feel in the morning is the driving force behind 90% of what I do these days. <laughs> you know, that really applies to work, though, in a way. I mean, one thing that I, when I was, you know, editing in magazines, there were a couple of freelancers who sometimes would say no to a piece that seemed like a pretty good call for them. And what they told me, and I try to, you know, take that advice and share it with others and apply it to my own life, which is if you overextend yourself because it's so hard to say no, especially as a freelancer, you will just do more work, not as well. And you ultimately will be less valuable to editors and produce uh, worse work. And, you know, I guess, you know, I guess now we call building your brand, but you know, some of those great freelancers who um, they were really right. They didn't take every time and offered because they're like, I just, maybe I'll make a little less money this month, but like, I just want to do a little bit less, a little bit better. And that's something, you know, it's hard because, you know, I like to throw a lot of spaghetti at the wall, but being more focused is is helpful in all parts of life. And I will say like some of that, like as a, and I've talked about this, but like being a poor kid, when I went out to California and was like in graduate school and working at Wired, I was I saying no was impossible because I never had money. So like if I right. made good money one month, I, I was always worried that the next month I wasn't. So it was just like, I relentlessly said yes to everything forever and i haven't learned until later on in life that like hey man you're actually okay now like it could change but like you can say no to things today and you'll be fine tomorrow yeah (laughs) i heard heard a writer uh doing an interview and talking about like god you're so overwhelmed he had a best-selling book and uh he said well what i say often especially in email is i'm so sorry i can't that's it not a long explanation and, and i'm sure he would like to you know, right. sometimes you simply can't, but yeah. you, want, you want to honor yourself and the work and, and do a good job. But, but it's nice to say yes. It's nice to say yes to people who feel like, you know, also the, you know, the stuff, stuff that you do for karma and pro bono, just yeah, yeah. School, school kids and, and nonprofits that I do a bunch of, but it's, it's nice to say yes. It feels good, but you have to just the balance, you know, it's yeah. all about a balance. So when, when high school's coming to a close, like you're sort of doing all the things you do out in the suburbs. Like, where are you thinking about going to college? Like, what are you going to college for? Are you going to college? I went to college. It was never like, it was never a, like an offering that I wouldn't go to college. Yeah. It was like, you know, my grandfather who immigrated from Russia at the age of four in 1914, like started saving for his unborn grandchildren's college, you know, with, he had a small town pharmacy, you know, right by the town we all grew up in. And so I feel like I'm not sure if he literally was saving, but like, yes, like 
he didn't, you know, he went to pharmacy school. My dad went to law school. My grandmother's greatest hope was that one of her grandchildren went to grad school. Any grad school will do. Just, we had to keep going. I did not go to grad school. But I went to uh, University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. Oh. I did not want to go to college 25 minutes from my home. I wanted to go to college in California. My parents said that was not an option. And so I went to college there. I always I mean, it's not a bad college. No, it's a great college. Uh, I didn't realize that it was kind of a businessy kind of fraternity school. I really yeah. didn't know that because my friend who was a couple years older than me who was there was like, come visit. And she was like in the cool theater group and like had a professor for dinner. I'm like, this is great. And there is that at Penn, but there's a lot of, uh, a lot of fraternities and, you know, some of my best friends were in fraternities, not for me. And, and a lot of Wharton there and a lot of business, but I found my lane doing the school newspaper and by the way, the minute I graduated, I got in my beat up Toyota with my buddy and drove 3,000 miles to California. <laughs> yeah. As soon as the family obligation was over, I'm going west. So I went to California and, you know, we, we got there, you and I, similar times, you know, those great 90s. Yeah. You know? When did you show up there? I got to California the very end of 91. Right okay. Before- yeah. So, and I was, I graduated, I got to Austin in 95 and got out to Berkeley in 98, I think. Yeah. I started graduate school in 98. So you were there like, right, like just a few years before Wired, like just a few, like it's still Mondo 2000 and like, it's still the weird underground stuff going there. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, Mother Jones was the, the main magazine. Oh yeah. Right. Right. That was a dream of mine. To write was the Utney Reader out there? I knew it was Minneapolis, okay. but like as an alternative weekly guy, I landed as an intern at the SF Weekly. Okay. And, uh, but as a, you know, I know the weekly world, I ended up working for a place called Alternet and, oh, and yeah. San Jose Metro out in San Jose, which is a, a series. They have a bunch of weeklies. And so I do know that world. I do reader is in, in Minneapolis, but you know, they're a close cousin of mother. Jones. Right. That, I think I had, I had both of them when I was like, it, once I got into my 20 or, you know, like, Oh, those were the two you read. Yeah. And Ms. Ms. Magazine. I read that one too. Sure. Ms. It's, uh, Ms. Magazine is approaching its, I think it's 50th year. Is it really? Coming up to the 20, I think it's 50. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, maybe it's 25. It's 50 too much. I don't know. No, it's probably 20, maybe 25. But still. Uh, but they have a big, they have a big anniversary coming up. But yeah, I remember when Wired started. I mean, so exciting. Um, I wrote a piece on Wired for the Columbia Journalism Review, my first magazine clip. I was like, can you imagine like your first magazine story and about this idea that actually like the gut that this was going to be a big deal was right. That was exciting, (laughs) you know, and all the things that John Battelle told me. He was right. It was yeah. the role known to the 90s. And yeah, he had, he had a good 15-year run of being right about stuff. He, he really <laughs> did. And, uh, just, you know, San Francisco was so exciting. New things were happening. The tech was starting to bubble a little bit. Um, and it just felt like, you know, uh, you could show up, wait tables as I did, write for $50 a week for uh, uh, an article for weekly newspapers, have a very cheap rent and a very gross apartment, and be like, okay, I want to figure out who I am in this right. world, writing and storytelling. What part of San Francisco did you live in? Uh, the Lower Haight. Oh, Lower so you did the thing. You, you did the thing. Yeah. I did the thing. I did the thing. <laughs> and of course, when moving back, you know, over 20 years later, I left in uh, uh, 97, uh, moving back. It was a one-way ticket to the East Bay for lots of reasons, but including just, you know, nothing, you know, including just um, it's a calmer life. 
Yeah. Well, and rent control ended like six months after I got there in 98. So like I got my apartment in Berkeley on university Avenue for $580 a month. Yeah. I told people, I feel like I got the last, I got the last apartment. You know, it's a one bedroom. Like, yeah. Those days are gone. Oh my God. I feel those those days were gone in like January of that. Yeah. I think January was when rent control ended there. Um, And suddenly everything went from, you know, affordable to all those landlords held back their inventory and then just flooded the market with $3,000 apartments or whatever. I mean, one nice thing about the, you know, the, the, you know, the virtual world we live in now, and even, you know, when the pandemic, you know, finally has any version of ending, a lot of this will stay is that, you know, if you couldn't afford to be an editorial assistant at a magazine or publishing in New York or, or come to now you couldn't of San Francisco, suddenly it was just, Oh, if you're a trust fund kid, et cetera, that's the way it worked. And with location being removed, hopefully the playing field for these jobs um, will open up. So it isn't all the kids from the fancy places and, you know, a largely, you know, 15 years ago, James Ledbetter wrote a piece uh, for the Village Voice called The Unbearable Whiteness of Publishing. 15 years ago, I think it was. And that has largely not changed. Yeah. I mean, not in the, that was what I was saying about the saying no to stuff. Like if you're a poor kid and I was a poor kid, but predominantly in this country, poverty hits, you know, communities of color more than it hits people like me. I, I, I worked three jobs just to be in, at Sa- in San Francisco or in Berkeley paying $560 a month. Cause I had wired, like I had, everything was so expensive. Like there was no time to ever like for me, relax. And I, you know, am a lucky poor kid. Yeah. So you get there in 91, you're working for the weekly. I mean, it's so interesting because like Austin, like I try to explain to people that 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 was sort of the end of the weekly era where you could go live in cool cities, work at places like all weeklies, you know, bartend, whatever. And like have five, six, seven, eight years to start your career. Yeah. It was about the last moment to get into, you know, what we would call traditional journalism, right? It's changed a lot now. But uh, yeah, and you know, the um, I wanted to be in San Francisco. I love the, the alternative press and the weeklies and the Mother Jones of the world. And you know, it seemed like it was it was storytelling and journalism to to make a difference. And, and it had that new journalism aspect of it too, right? Like weeklies really let you sort of dive in and like bring personality to stories. They were not give me the inverted pyramid. Exactly. I mean, you know, one of the early Wired writers, Gary Wolf, wrote the food column for the SF Weekly. But it was, you know, it was just a different kind. It was all about place and neighborhood. Right. And it was just the kind of writing that we associate with the best writing about food and technology. It was personal. But at the time, to me, it was seemed like a revelation that, wow, you could do that. And yet right. still tell you where to get like a decent burrito. <laughs> right. And be respected. Right. And have people like, oh, my God, like this is somebody that like we want to hire and not just, like that became sort of the thing. Um, I love my time at weeklies for that reason. Like you, it just felt like you could have a purpose in your writing that was beyond just telling somebody what happened. Yeah. And they really were, I mean, the influence of the weeklies was much bigger and obviously oh God, that, yeah, that, that day is done, but uh, things move and change. And I think, you know, we're seeing a, a shift towards more meaningful content, largely online um, that at that first blast of, yeah, things is maybe yeah. not so meaningful. It's interesting because the weeklies really were like there were two, I think, out there, right? The Bay Guardian and the the Bay what? Guardian, the SF Weekly, and yeah. the Bay Express. Where, yeah, uh, uh, 
I, I uh, wrote a piece, a very precious, like you shouldn't read your old, old writing, but a very precious piece about graduating and finding myself in the essay column in the East Bay Express. And the artist they assigned to do my piece was an artist named Dave Eggers. Oh, shit. Are you kidding me? Yeah. And I had this overwrought metaphor about how my father gave me a watch at graduation and, and this watch is so, you know, not what I'm about and just. And and so Dave did this like Salvador Dali persistence of memory image with the big watches like crushing me or something. <laughs> and I met him and and you know and he said, Hey man, I liked your piece. And um which he shouldn't have, but but he, I liked your piece. I'm starting I'm starting this thing called Might Magazine. I loved Might Magazine. Right. I'm trying to get, you know, this generation new voices, new kind of thing. And and that's how I met Dave and got involved with Might, which was really the first magazine. I worked with, and uh, that was also like what a blast of the things that were happening in San Francisco, and you know, in the early nineties. Well, night. and that came out of the like I had been reading Mondo two thousand, Mondo two, Mondo six thousand, Mondo two thousand, Mondo two thousand, and yeah. uh, and then what pre web Boing Boing, right? Like all that stuff was like happening, and like all of a sudden I started reading these things, and I was like, holy shit, like. Yeah. All these, like, I think I was in Austin and maybe college in Austin was just like, Oh my God, these are all my people. I don't know. And David Peskovitz was from my town. We had started at the same newspaper and oh, so right. I sort of followed him. Yeah. He went to Berkeley. I went to Berkeley. He worked at yeah. Wired. I worked. I sort of followed him out. His sister-in-law right. lived with me for two years when she lived out there. And so it was just like, Oh my God, I'm sort of following this Peskovitz character into this sort of weird fucking world of like writers that seem to be doing cool shit. Yeah, Boing Boing and, and Might Magazine shared an office for a while. Ugh. And, you know, and, uh, and, and, you know, there was a magazine that came out around the time called Future Sex. It was yep. Like, Future yep. Sex. And, you know, I have still, but I love saving like one or two issues of, of magazines. And I have a Future Sex somewhere in a box and the early wires. And, and you know, it's, it's, just, it's just a geeky love of the form. You know, I do yeah. love, I have a Playboys from the 70s design and it was unbelievable and the writers they had were unbelievable so i you know we you know the print world is is um not as necessary as it used to be but i do like holding holding these things and some of the, the great old magazines yeah and like might and boing boing and bondo were it felt like and i'm sure that everybody there wasn't gen x but it also felt like a very sort of gen x aesthetic about cool and the future and tech stuff. Like I just read it as like something so radically different than I love Clay Felker, but it was not New York magazine, right? Like it was right. not that it was not. No. Um, and it uh, was it designed was very, that way. It was a very Gen X type of, you know, <laughs> type of, uh, type of world. And I, and I do think that, you know, uh, you know, there, that was, uh, I love Gen, I am Gen X. I love the music. I love the culture. As we know, we're a statistically small group of people <laughs> between the, the boomers and millennials. I think it's, I think small is beautiful, Yeah. but uh, I, I, I hadn't really thought about it the way you just said it. That in fact, that was kind of like this, all this creative stuff coming out of Gen X, lots of places, but definitely Dave and some of the other people saw that this was a new voices were coming and, yeah. you know, and you turned that into this unbelievable literacy um, uh, nonprofit as eight two six, and you know I work um, for one out here. I volunteer for one of them here in Pittsburgh, yeah. and they're all over the country. And, yeah, uh, but it was just fun to like. It is fun to think about like a time when you could come and create things 
And and I know that you know the new generations or people of any ages will find ways to do it. Yeah, uh, the, the barriers to entry for storytelling has never been easier. So, uh, but uh, but it's fun to be back. I guess the, yeah. the journey of there and back, and and uh, you know have a lot of friends and community out here. Yeah, and like it, that all sort of grew out of the zine culture too, right? Like, is this like suddenly like I feel like Wired and all that stuff came out of this DIY publishing where it was like we're going to do what we want and not right. what you're supposed to what, what somebody tells you to do, and some of it's going to work. I mean, I've told people early Wired was designed so that it was really hard to read, like. Yeah they would have things where you were literally like turning the magazine. Yeah. They were just like, fuck it. We're going to just do this. And uh, you know, it's like the person that gets photo sh- or uh, whatever. Um, one of the, one of the publishing software things. And they're like, I can use comic sans, you know, like it was just like, everything was yeah. up for grabs back then. Yes. Um, and so you, you, you don't leave the Bay area. You just move from San Francisco to the East Bay. No, I was in the Bay Area until 97. Oh, uh, left the Bay Area. Yeah, I had um, a bunch of balls in the air, and one of them was editing the front of a book of a new magazine called POV, which is meant for guys' point of view. It's started by Randall Lane, who um, is now editor of Forbes, and POV is you know, long gone. Yeah. Uh, we refused to put women on the cover of our magazine to sell it unlike Maxim, and so we went out of business. At the end, we put women on, and in the last gasp. But, but it, was a, it was about, you know, it was kind of a work hard, play hard. It was like, you know, a lot of, like, young Ford stuff, a lot of, uh, you know, travel cheaply and smartly. Yeah. Uh, a lot of um, relationship stuff, so that kind of thing. And uh, Randall said, um, hey, man, you know, can you edit six pages of this? It's coming out four times this year for a couple hundred bucks. You know, um, I know you're a real short form guy, front of book guy, fun stuff. I'm like, yeah, sounds good, man. And then lo and behold, he got investment. And he said, we're opening up in Boston. So POV opened up in Boston in 97, moved to Boston for a year. Uh, they said, we're going to set up in Boston. The thinking was, we don't want to turn into another New York magazine, another details meant for the elite coastal. We yeah, want to be, I, I literally thought of details when you said POV. Yeah. I'm like, oh, this is we like complex to be regular details. guys. Uh, and you know, as you know, like women read men's magazines all the time, and you're regular people, not just the coasts. And we wanted to be a uh, that kind of magazine really appeal to all of America. And so they did. After a year, uh, we got our footing in, in Boston. We the the, uh, the staff uh, we had a converted fraternity house on the Fenway um, <laughs> near the ballpark. And since most of us came from somewhere else, we didn't know anyone in Boston. So it was like the real world magazines. And you know, it's great. You just you work. You go out. You know, you just live the life. And it really was wonderful. And I'm still friends with almost everybody from that time. Many of them stayed in journalism or became novelists and you know nonfiction writers. And then we moved to New York part of the plan after a year set up there. And then I just like, here we go. My dream, which as I often say to my son and students, my dream was to work at a, at a magazine. You could dream bigger, but I always wanted to be a writer. I love the collaborative elements of it. And I went from POV magazine to ESPN, ESPN magazine. Oh yeah. And then to uh, Yahoo internet life, which as we know was the people's wired. Yeah. You know? And, uh, we did some good things. And, and when were you uh, there? I was in uh, Yahoo Life from uh, 
2000 until it went under in 2002. So a little over two years. Gotcha. And it went under, we were booming and, and with the, the internet <laughs> boom, and then we went down yeah. and out we went. Yeah. And then I worked at Men's Journal. And eventually, you know, I had a dream to start um, a user-generated content online uh, experience starting from 2003. And because at these different jobs, ESPN, Yahoo Internet Life, I was like, well, Yahoo Internet Life was all about tech culture, but ESPN and PLB, I was the guy who's like, tech is coming. You know, we, we did the 100 best websites on the web, the POB 100 in the 1998, you know, pretty early. And I just loved tech culture, not being a coder or anything, but I just loved how it was going to change storytelling, really. And so I had this vision of creating uh, a, a, an online platform where anyone could share a story. And I called it Smith Magazine after my grandfather, Morris Smith, where everyone called Smitty. Now, I had no funding, no money, and really no business doing that. <laughs> and um, I did start it, though, um, on fumes. And uh, the old Smith Mag had lots of cool stuff. It was a little bit like, I like to describe it as, imagine medium.com minus hundreds of millions of dollars in startup money and the brain of Ed Williams. That's what it was. Uh-huh. But, uh, you know, a little peanut version, um, user-generated. Right. And, you know, we did it for about a year, and my parents were like, and friends were like, you're not making any money. I think my plan was web ads. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that was the time, right? Oh, oh to be young and innocent. And, uh, and then um, I did different things. We, we, we serialized some graphic novels that became books, one about uh, uh, Hurricane Katrina, lots of cool things. But really, there was no money. And I, you know, I was still like freelancing uh, and, and hustling to, to make ends meet. But at the end of that first year... Uh, something, a big project that was supposed to be our lead item on smithmag.net for the week. Um, this video blog idea that just went bust on day two, the cross-country tour of these two video bloggers. You know, and this is now we're in two, end of 2006. And, you know, necessity is the mother invention. We had, like, a hole on Smith Mag. And, like, Vanity Fair doesn't have holes. They have 50 things in the world. I did not. And so... My uh, my one uh, my one other editor, Smith Mag, Rachel Fersleiser, and I came up with this idea to give the yeah. Hemingway novel for sale, baby shoes never worn, a personal twist because that's what we were doing on Smith Mag, all personal stories, and we called it the Six Word Memoir. Popped it up on the site. Oh, and then I called these guys I met at a conference at this goofy little company called Twitter. <laughs> which didn't have me in it back then. I met them at a conference in San Francisco, the future of web apps. Yeah, yeah. I had no business being at that conference. I felt such an imposter with my little user-generated site in September 2006. But my father always said, Larry, you want to be the dumbest guy in the room. That's how you learn. Yes. And I was the dumbest guy in the room at Fort Mason at future web apps. But I met these guys, Jack Dorsey and Biz Stone. Uh, they, they were the ones I met starting this thing called Twitter. And back then, they had three people working for them. I had three people working for them. They got a little bigger, but are they really happy? Um, and I said, uh, hey, what if we did storytelling together, like 100 Word Stories on Twitter and Smith Mag? And, and I think it was Biz who said, it's way too long, man. But give us a call if you ever come up with something shorter. So I literally called Twitter before we launched Six Word Memoirs. And like, you know, hi, it's like Jack. Hey, want to do a co-thing where like, we could give away a prize, but to win the prize, your six-word memoir has to be tweeted as well as put on my website. They said, sure. 
And the big laugh line here, which I got to show this at Twitter, a newsletter came out a few weeks later. We are so delighted with our first corporate partnership. You, your, your listeners can't see me making air quotes. Uh, with Larry Smith and Smith Mag, uh, which now has more than, at Smith Mag, which is now at Six Words, has more than 2,000 followers. That's and amazing. I was like, hey man, we're Smith Mag. So funny. 2,000 people have signed up and left Twitter since we've been talking, Brad. And, uh, but, but, you know, that's how Six Words started. And the few people on Twitter back then, they all loved, you know, this kind of thing. They got it started. And eventually, you know, I started getting press in what we call flyover country, like my beloved Ohio and yeah. other places when I didn't know anything about Ohio then. And it became the open, you know, true democratic uh, populist, if you can still use that word, populist storytelling platform that I really dreamed of. Um, so, so funny. I was an accident, a little bit smart, a little bit luck, like most things. I so I'm on the board for South by Southwest Interactive, and you know, Twitter took off. I think it was 2007 at, at South by. They'd been out for a year or whatever, but that, that was, was my first South by, and um, I, it was really exciting because people knew what six word memoirs are, and that was the year Twitter really popped. I have a picture of Hugh Forrest, who's the executive director. So Hugh and I are friends. I've known him for 25 years. I have a picture of he and I standing in front of those big fucking, they had all those monitors in the convention center. He's coming in. And I literally looked at Hugh and I'm like, this is the dumbest fucking thing South by Southwest has ever done. And I tell that story every year to people. I'm like, this is how good a writer I was at Wired. (laughs) Like I stood in front of what became the biggest (laughs) Thing. Uh, it, no, that was really their year. Uh, Rachel and I, uh, we, we put on our Smith Mag t-shirts and, and went, went South by again, feeling like imposters. But, be, but you know, it's like when you're at a wedding and if you have a friend who's shy, if it's your wedding or something, you give your friend the camera and say, go take pictures. So that's what we did. We, we created a photo out a collage of pictures. It's still on Flickr somewhere, which was the geek t-shirt t-shirt. The, the, yeah, the geek t-shirts. Yeah. Because the t-shirts at South by are amazing. We're like, hi, we do this thing. Yeah. I mean, that's how we met people. Just taking pictures of geeky t-shirts. Yeah. So it's, it is, um, it, it was a few months later when the, uh, when the, um, Arab Spring took off, and suddenly I was watching the protest t- t- go through. That was when I first got Twitter, but I was like, but anyway, it's just one of those funny, I always tell people that story, like, yeah, I was there when it launched, and my, after 10 years of being in technology, I'm like, never going to happen. <laughs> but, I mean, we talk about disruption all the time, and I remember, you know, being at ESPN, and, and it was pretty early with that, and I'm like, Twitter, 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 and they're like, they're like yeah, we don't know, understandably, and then I said to my boss, what if there was a way for athletes to talk to fans without us? Yeah. And he said, let's have a meeting. And it became so much more than that. But the idea of just disrupting, you know, started as storytelling or Twitter's right. original thing was, what are you doing? Right. You know? And, but really the idea that like, and again, it's, it's big and it's messy and you've got to curate your Twitter feed if you really want to like make sense of anything. But the idea that suddenly anyone can tell a story, can share an opinion, and it's messy. And I'm, you know, in a much smaller way with my work, it's like giving that same tool and creative outlet, you know, again, more around truly storytelling, not around politics or, or, or things like that, but all that comes into play with any kind of short form, whether six-word memoirs or Twitter. But uh, it's, 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 
just, you know, it's wild to be, what I also like about Gen X is we know a time before all this, you know, I know a time before email as an adult, really, yeah. at least in college, and we know the time after, and while my son still, you know, helps with a lot of my tech problems, he's nine, I do feel like understanding, being able to empathize with, say, my parents, who are a disaster on technology, but be <laughs> curious about, like, what's going on with you know, Snapchat and things like that. I, yeah. I like that space of like this age, the Gen X head. I think, you know, it's yeah. the, you know, you, you have just more patience and curious for, for people who don't get it or don't want to learn it and more maybe curiosity for things that like suddenly, well, I'm older and uh, wait a minute, <laughs> tell me about this TikTok. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm afraid to push buttons in a way that I never was. Like I was looking at some things. I'm like, I'm afraid I'm going to accidentally go live on Instagram. Like I don't want to do that. And I'm like, holy shit, this is how it begins. This is literally how it begins. Uh, but I did just buy my first ring light yesterday. So I have entered into, I have now lived both the, from the zine world to the ring light world. And I'm like, they're the same. They're this. I've just got to look at them. Like they're the same thing. But, they are the same thing. Right. And, and, and a podcast is a whole other wonderful thing. And it's, you know, you, you we also know that podcasts came out of the gate very slowly. And in fact, yeah. Twitter was a podcast company called audio before it became Twitter. And, and it just, they, weren't that into it. Right. And they were really into this thing that, the, you know, the side project uh, called Twitter. Yeah. So uh, podcasts were not an overnight success. It was a slow burn. Yeah. We, I mean, I was doing one at Wired. It was called Pod. We was just downloadable audio and streaming audio. And I had always, we had like a million people that listened to it. And I told folks we should have called it buffering. That should have been the name of what it was because it was a, I'm sure it was a terrible experience in 1999 and 2000. So this, it, you go, you do this partnership and what happens? Like, like what? Like, what is the next two years of that? You know, it, you know, it kind of all changed in an instant. Back then, when you uh, submitted a six-word memoir, uh, you know, which submitted hopefully on Twitter, if you wanted to win our big prize, the iPod, which I went and bought myself, and uh, you know, walked down to the Apple Store, you had to submit on Twitter on the site. But in the very beginning, it just went to my email. So within three days of launching it with Twitter, I had like two thousand emails. I'm like, Holy whoa. Shit. This is not sustainable. So then I moved it so it showed up on the site. We started curating. But, uh, and just so you know, the winner, we originally was launched as a one-month contest with Twitter. And I took my 10 favorites, and then I asked the small community on SmithMag to vote on their first, like a little mini crowdsourcing before that term, I guess, was done. But we sort of voted. And the community voted for this winner. Barrister Barista, what's the diff mom? <laughs> Lovely wordplay, a story, kind of a great moment of someone, you know, probably like on her, you know, trying to figure out her life. His name was Abigail Morehouse. We, she thought when I emailed her, it was one of those poetry scams, pay me to have my, I was like, no, 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 this is all real. Where do we send the iPod? It was inscribed on the iPod. But, um, you know, what happened was a couple of things. I pretty quickly thought, what if we put a bunch of these in a book, right? That was my thought. And so a couple months after uh, it really took off and again, getting uh, some attention, not just on the coast and suddenly the first, you know, the first bit of, of sexual memoirs were a lot about writing and about like, you know, a little bit tech related, more feeling what you see a little bit more on maybe a medium right now. Yeah. But as we got uh, word out on uh, shows, radio shows that were heard all over the country, we would get six word memoirs about people who knit but not in the hipster way, just truly knit. Right. And 
you know, NASCAR dads and one tooth, one cavity, life's cruel. And we, we really became this, this, this really open uh, uh, tool for self-expression that anyone could use and felt they had a right to tell their story. The website looked nice. It looked sort of professional. The word I used was not share but publish because, I don't know, I thought the website is it's not controversial now, but in 2006, 2007 to be published on a website, what does that mean? Yeah, right. And so I sent my, my book proposal to, uh, I think, I believe, seven publishers and six said no. Most said no, either because they just didn't think it had legs or a couple said, I love it, but could you do a whole, could the book be all celebrity six-word memoirs? And <laughs> yeah. I said, no. Yeah. I do believe in the power of celebrities, and I like some celebrities. In fact, when I first launched it, I, I knew Elizabeth Gilbert before she was Eat, Pray, Love Elizabeth Gilbert. We both covered Burning Man in 97, and I met her there. And so she was a buddy, and I think she was, I think maybe you pray love it happened by then. But I said, hey, would you, would you share your six-word memoir just to show other people that, hey, best-selling writer can do it, a nurse can do it, a mom can do it, I can do it. Everyone, the storytelling playing field is a level one. And so, you know, Elizabeth uh, Liz shared uh, hers, uh, me see world, me write stories. <laughs> Instead, if it was on audio, you'd be saying it like, you know, like, like yeah. hard again, but, you know. Um, later, by the way, this is great uh, for writers. Uh, in, in, a, in a book of advice of six words, uh, she wrote uh, Elizabeth Gilbert's advice for writers. Chances are, comma, your editor is right. <laughs> but anyway, so I did believe that, yes, celebrities get the word out. It's nice to be, you know, in yeah. the same playground as, you know, writers that you've heard of and read and love. And I said, no, no, I can't do all celebrities. That's not what we're about. We do some celebrities, um, like maybe 10%. And so HarperCollins was my one and only book offer. Didn't even have an agent back then. And I said, could you give me maybe $500 more? They said, no. I said, okay, well, I'll take it. Little tiny book deal. Um, Rachel and I made the book and it became a New York Times bestseller. And, uh, you know, what a great feeling that is. And, yeah. and more than that, and that is a lot, obviously. It's a big deal. It allowed me to get, you know, more book deals. And, uh, but, but, but mostly when the book came out and teachers found it and librarians love six-word memoirs, just it makes sense. They're literary people. It started becoming a classroom lesson. Not my plan. I started getting like, emails. Um, oh, hey, I'm teaching six words in my classroom. And hey, you know, some of those memoirs in that first book, because I didn't know, I didn't, I didn't make this book to be in third grade classrooms or even high school. There's things sure. about pregnancy and dad going to prison and abortion and, you know, girlfriend is pregnant, my husband said. And married by Elvis, divorced by Friday. But, you know, which is fun. Right. But uh, it just became this tool that, you know, Houses of Faith used and Veterans Group used. And over the years, I would work with them because, hey, let's do this together. I'm pretty good at this. I don't have a lot of other skills, but I can help you curate content. I know how to spark conversations. So it went from a literary riff with Twitter to a, a true tool for, tool for storytelling and getting to the essence of really anything um, which, um, which, uh, made the project so much more meaningful than I ever expected. And why, yeah. you know, you know what, it's like almost on 14 years now, 13, 14 years, it's still, uh, it's, it still inspires me. And, and I get up very excited to do my job. It's interesting because writer, like the premise of the show, and I wanted to talk to you for two reasons. One, because I don't know how the fuck we never met. And two, the premise of the show is that writers 
I think writers become writers because they're trying to understand a question. They're trying to, and I think that we are naturally third-party observers to the world, that no matter how much we feel like we fit in, we're always trying to figure out this thing and express it. And you literally have gotten famous by not doing your own writing, right? By like creating this platform into which other people can do these short stories, right? These six word stories to do their own thing. And I just think that's, it's so fantastic and so amazing because I always talk about words being precious, but they're not precious, right? Like they're not just for people that write at HarperCollins. They're for everybody to tell stories. Of, of course. And, and the idea that I think just naturally, like I love community, Right. And I love, you know, I love being at book readings and I love, you yeah. know, seeing stories bloom at festivals. But when I realized that like what I wanted to do, I wanted with, you know, again, it was a while ago. I wanted, I thought that like we could, demo- that we had the tools to democratize storytelling before, right. we, before there was an Instagram, before every phone was a, a camera and a, <laughs> a video recorder. Right. Right. And you could see that coming. If you're working at Wired or, or Yahoo in our life. You can see the tools we're going to create. So obviously, just the way, you know, we wanted to tell stories by grunting you know, and doing hieroglyphics back, you know, when you were cave people and, and doing that, we always want to tell stories that when you have the tools, of course, there's going to be an explosion user-generated content, but then the problem is how do you curate it, right? So the first problem is blank pages are scary for everyone. If that blank page is filled with six words, a little less scary. And yeah. Some people write thousands of six-word memoirs. Some people write one and never do it again. And then if you, if you know what's going on in my son's classroom this very day, again, they, I didn't push it, you know, um, <laughs> is start with six words about your story, and then later we will add a backstory. And that's yeah. what happens in a lot of schools. So not the beginning six words, not the end, but the beginning of maybe a longer conversation. It is, it's one of those things that you hear it and you see it happen. And I taught writing. Like I, like I, I have done this my whole life. And you just go, oh, yeah, no, that's anybody. If you tell somebody to write a story about their life or write a page, most people are going to struggle doing that. Um, even, even people who yes. write for a living. Like, All of us. Nobody likes the blank page. I don't no. like the blank page. No, it's why we do laundry and clean the house instead of writing. And so a lot of things done in the house, especially in the pandemic. The dishes have never been so clean. Yes, I have. I've cleaned this house from top to bottom multiple times. But to sit in front of people and go six words because it's both lyrical, right? Like kids that understand lyrics could say, look, this is just a lyric. It's just a line in the song. There's so many ways to frame that that seem more accessible. And then, like you said, the obvious next step for those that want to continue it is now you got the character right around it. Like, you know, I, I'd love to share one story yeah. that, that just inspired me. Uh, it was a couple of years ago when I did a book of six words on immigration, which was a, I will note, a pre-Trump book, just because my storytelling hero is my grandfather who immigrated from Russia and he would sit at a pharmacy and, and just know all his, he knew all the, uh, all the people that came into his store, all his customers knew their stories, their health issues. But like, you know, how's Marge? You know, like <laughs> right. he had a knee injury and I heard, you know, Bill graduated from high school, all that. I just watched him tell stories and know his community. But I always wanted to do like a book about coming to America, whether you just got here or what's your great grandfather's story. And some of it's on a slave ship and some of it's on the Mayflower. Right. But to do that book and to want actually, you know, a, a number of those stories to be from recent immigrants, you have to get in the field more. And it's fun to be in the field. And so I was in a high school, I was in a bunch of schools, but I was in a high school in uh, San Francisco called Mission High School, oh, yeah. which is 
mostly, you may remember it, uh, people who have come to America within the past year. And I did a workshop with, uh, it was 35 or 40 kids in this classroom, one heroic teacher. There were six different languages and 12 different countries represented, right? Yeah. Really intense. I said, okay, we're going to do six words about where we come from, a journey. And you give them a big tent, right? right. To like answer the prompt. And it's hard because I also I speak idiomatic a lot. And sometimes the, uh, you know, I speak too quickly. And sometimes the teacher would say, oh, like, he would explain what brainstorm is because that's just not an obvious word if, you've just, if you're learning English, yeah, right? Really. But, but what happened that day, and there's been a lot of these kind of powerful stories, but this, this is especially poignant. Um, when you go, so we do a slam, whether at a festival or in a classroom. Everyone share your six words. And so you go around the room and you share them, and it's obviously optional, you know, especially in a classroom. You don't want, some people are just shy, and sometimes they ask someone else to read it. And this, this one little girl... Uh, this one young woman, uh, uh, you know, probably 15, 16, right? She maybe didn't want to go up and, and share hers. And her friends are like, no, no, come on, come on. They're kind of pushing her. She's like, okay. So she holds up her, 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 her piece of paper with her, you know, you write your six words in a Sharpie. And she put her feet on the ground. And she said, my name is not Mama Sita, okay? Holy shit. And there was first a pause, then a little bit of laughter, and then applause. So that young woman, who clearly was catcalled, you know, mamacita, mamacita, maybe by a kid in front of us in the classroom, just took her story back. She said, you don't own my story, I own my story. And to watch that room break out in applause and to see her just sort of go from, I'm a little too nervous to like, to get up there, to, to being encouraged by her classmates, to that was such a powerful moment. And, and, you know, we are the protagonists of our own stories. And even in the age of Instagram and Facebook and Snap and TikTok, we sometimes don't remember that. We don't always we don't have those tools accessible, which is another matter. But, her, you know, Dara C, that's her name, uh, she, you know, she owned her story that day and, and maybe changed the way some people think in that classroom. Maybe the kid, if he was there, isn't going to do that again. And, you know, maybe it's just, you know, like silly, dumb, you know, kid stuff. But, you know, it's, it's, she reminded her classmates that like, that's not the way it's going to go around here. Yeah. Well, and everything's dumb kid stuff until it's not. Exactly. <laughs> that's a really good point. If we've learned nothing in the last three years, it's, uh, that, we, yeah. you know, sure. structures come from places and, um, but yeah. that's, it's why I think the, pro I've known about the project forever just because how can you not, um, and I've, the thing that I've always found it, it's a little bit, I mean, it's like post seeker, right? Like those things came out at the same time, which is how do you allow people to tell a story in a way that they can tell a story. And instead of doing what writers often do, which is like, well, let's teach them how to sit down and put it down on a thing. This is just like, here's all the shit guys, like make your story. Like, and then the principles of a six word memoir, especially if, you're, if someone's teaching it to you in a class or a workshop is like, you know, structure, specificity, imagery. I'm going to share one. Uh, I'm more Clark Kent than Superman. So <laughs> in a six words memoir, it's the same stuff with storytelling. Structure, yeah. specificity, imagery, such as, you know, I'm yeah. more Clark Kent than Superman. It's the same stuff. And revisions, you know, rewrite. Or just slap it down. Sometimes it's good the first time. Yeah, and it's and it's short enough that like it's not. That's what I mean. Like it's short enough that it's not intimidating. That like you can literally do twenty drafts in a in a thirty five minute workshop or a forty minute workshop. 
Like, yeah. I, I already know how I would do it if I was doing it. Like, oh, this would be great. Like, this is so, it's so great. But look, Larry, it was great having you on the program. It was great talking about this. Um, it's also hilarious that we know more people. Like, every time I talk to you, I find out right. we know more people that we know. Um, and I'm Well, looking for- in the pandemic, we learned that the world has never been smaller. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, in writers, I think, like, we like to think of it as, like, there's this big, huge community of writers. And then you sort of realize, like, yeah, but we all go to the same four places. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, no we can chance. all travel further in a funny way in, in, in the age of the pandemic. But, yeah. Uh, it is, you know, I love what you do. It's just great hearing all the different range of the way people write, the way people share and go about the craft. And I really appreciate it. Yeah, man. And I look forward to getting out there when all this is over and actually doing this in person over a beer. The Bay Area always wants to have you back. Well, folks, there you have it. That was Larry Smith, who runs the Six Word Memoir Project. Such a fun and fantastic conversation that takes me back to the time at the start of my writing career with all of those magazines, Might, Boing Boing, Mondo 2000, everything that shaped the way that we told stories for 20 years. It was just a blast from the past and so much fun to bounce back through that. And I really hope you enjoyed listening to it. Before we get out of here, just a couple reminders. If you like what you heard, do us those two favors that I asked at the top of the show. Leave us a written review wherever you listen to podcasts. Tell your friends about us. While you're at it, don't forget to check out the other programs on the Solid Listen Podcast Network, including the flagship Mother May I Sleep With podcast with host and our Solid Listen Podcast queen, Molly MacLear. And if you can't wait for our new episodes, they're out every Monday and Thursday. You can always catch us on Twitter and Instagram at the writer's jam until the next time i will see you around the internet we have to try to find ways to find peace and art and love and connection in the midst of the chaos of life. So that's life writing. I am so excited to have comic and daily show correspondent Roy Wood Jr. Well, hello. That joke was birthed from my trip to the African-American Smithsonian in DC, which that was the first time I saw something where, all right, on this floor, it's nothing but good news. Mm. We've gone through slavery, we've gone through desegregation and emancipation proclamation and reconstruction but on this floor beyonce michael jordan Issa ray thank you for coming <laughs> come and join us on life writing for more stories like these and the tools writers need to make yourself the hero or heroine of the adventure of your life life writing is available wherever you get your podcasts